Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Speaking today to Michael Sacasas, who's one of the writers on tech who I've read most uh, avidly and um, profited the most from reading in, in the past, I'd say, 10 years at this point. And so I'm very grateful to you for uh, coming on today. Thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. Glad to be here. Yeah, so you can find Michael's work at the Convivial Society, which is on Substack, and his uh, previous blog, The Frailest Thing, which was how I first discovered his work, uh, is is no longer operational. But um, there is an, an ebook that compiles some of the the most the richest and most interesting posts um, from that. So I would definitely point people to that as well to get a sense of the kind of things he's been working on. So I wanted to start out with a quote that I um, first encountered on your old uh, Frailest Thing blog, um, which is from uh, the, the historian of technology, Melvin Kranzberg. And uh, you have a post called Kranzberg's Six Laws of Technology, a Metaphor and a Story, which discusses his work. And the quote is his first law of technology which goes, technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. So since I first encountered that quote, again, thanks to you, uh, I've kind of been, you know, I, I, I come back to it a lot and, and I often bring it up in my teaching. And I find that people, my students, but also others really struggle with um, making sense of that, even though it seems like a pretty simple statements. So what do you, what do you think are the, the, the difficulties of trying to understand that proposition and that, that way of thinking about technology? I, I would say that perhaps the, the first difficulty is that it challenges uh, one of the fundamental assumptions that a lot of people have about technology, which is that it is essentially a, a neutral tool um, and that what matters, certainly what matters morally um, is what one does with it. Um, and so uh, you might uh, hear somebody say something like, um, you know, uh, nuclear power is, is a neutral technology and, and it can be used to flatten a city or power a city, but the, the tool itself is essentially neutral. What matters is, is the human agency involved. And so I think that, um, that, I do think that's a fallacy. I think that that gets us only so far. Uh, clearly human agency matters and, and moral culpability or praiseworthiness is, is involved in the human decision-making, but at the same time, um, the tools aren't quite neutral, even as Kranzberg says in this sort of conish statement, um, you know, they, they may not be good or bad, or, or at least before you reach that judgment, you have to recognize that apart from that, they're, they're not neutral. So I'll, I'll just use one of the examples that I use to um, get this concept across, especially if I'm doing sort of a tech philosophy 101 sort of presentation. And, um, I use the, the example of perception. Uh, so uh, a, a tool already shapes our perception even before we, we implement it, before we put it to use, so to speak. Um, there's a line that's familiar to a lot of people about how to the man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so I think that actually is a, a pretty good way of getting at this. Um, if you hold a hammer in hand and you sort of just take a moment to re reflect on, on how 
um, I won't say how it makes you feel, but how uh, what you feel with it in hand or how you begin to see the world. And there is all this, it invites you to strike things, right? Uh, it's a particular shape and the way it's weighted. Um, things around you now seem as things that could be struck, right? Even if you're not, of course, going to follow through with it. Um, and so having that hammer in hand, even before you've struck a thing, changes the field of perception. Uh, a, a more uh, perhaps contemporary example is um, uh, the smartphone as a, a ubiquitous camera, where all of a sudden we feel the impulse to take pictures of things that we might not have thought to take pictures of before. And even if we resist it, we sort of are aware that that possibility is there. So, so there's this um, way in which that tool, that particular technology, before we have done a thing with it, is already kind of shaping the way that we uh, relate to the world, the way we perceive the world. And I think you can multiply examples like that across the board so that our engagement with, with the world um, arises out of, um, is a kind of emergent property out of, out of our own intentionality to be sure, but also uh, out of um, the way we perceive the world through these tools. And so um, this is not to say that, again, a, a technology is good or bad, only to recognize the ways in which it already is um, shaping the contours of our experience of the world. Um, and then one last example that I use of this, um, which became uh, especially pertinent to me in recent years, um, is something like ultrasound technology for uh, the perception of the fetus in vitro, right, in, uh, in utero. And I, uh, when we found out um, the gender of our child, our first girl, that changed for me, the experience of being, you know, a father-to-be. Um, it recast that experience. It, in some ways, I, I would maybe even argue it added a dimension of, uh, of meaningfulness. Um, others might have experienced it differently. But the point is, is that we didn't necessarily do a good or bad thing with that, um, although some might argue that perhaps we did. But yet my, my experience, the meaning of being a father to be changed as a result of it. So these are all just various examples, I think, drawn from kind of everyday experience that show us that the tool is having some kind of uh, forming formative effect on us, even apart from our use of it. And I find that that tends to help. I think that that, that sort of helps helps it click for for individuals. Yeah, and in the context of that post, you discuss the sort of often binary framing of discussions of technology around mm -hmm. volunteerism or determinism. Mm -hmm. Right, and. I do find um, that law and the way you discuss it kind of helpful at trying to move beyond that, um, that framing of the issue. Mm -hmm. um, so how, I mean, would you, would you understand that as one of the benefits of that, um, that sort of approach that it, it takes us beyond just having to think about it in terms of volunteerism or determinism? Right. Yeah. And, and I see the, you know, those two poles in terms of either, you know, the, the, the tool does nothing, we do everything. So it lands everything on the side of human agency, or, or else it re, um, reduces human agency to an almost meaningless uh, degree, uh, where, where the tool becomes essentially formative, altogether determinative of, um, you know, the human action and human thinking and perception. And, and I think the, the reality is um, that, you know, we, we are contoured and, and shaped and formed, but not quite determined. Um, and so that this way of perceiving it certainly, um, I think, helps us see in a more nuanced way 
how our tools intersect with our desires, our agency. I, I, I talked to you about tools becoming habit forming. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have a kind of um, um, lay, layman's Aristotelian uh, moral virtue theory of, of uh, moral formation. So these habits become really important. Um, they create dispositions in us. And, and again, it, it, that doesn't really, it doesn't matter whether you've been doing good things or bad things with these tools. You know, it, think, for instance, of um, how difficult it is to, for uh, us to be patient, uh, to, to abide the passing of time. Um, and yet every, every technology, almost every technology we deploy, right, is premised on the idea of making things faster and more efficient. And so that's cultivating a certain disposition towards time in us. Um, so, yeah, I think that it helps us get beyond this uh, sort of debate about whether, whether everything is determined by our tools or whether, you know, it's just a matter of our agency. It's, it's more complicated, essentially, I think is the answer. So, I mean, Kranzberg would be um, one example of this, but I think one of the values of your work is that you return us to certain thinkers who were um, engaging with the larger effects of technology prior to the rise of the internet and thinking about what they have to say to us today and, and how their, their thought applies to our situation. And you, I think the, the list that you often provide, including in your Twitter bio, is Jacques Ellul, um, Ivan Illich, um, Marshall McLuhan, and Neil Postman. Um, and so these are all, you know, as, as I take them, they all have in common being writers who are actually um, you know, who are quite erudite, but were also, I mean, their their books were often bestsellers. They were, you know, really quite widely read and discussed in their time mm -hmm. and have kind of fallen by the wayside in more recent years. And and they all also were, were writers who were thinking about media ecologies prior to the rise of the internet. And, you know, within that genealogy, Postman is sort of the the latest the, the most recent figure, but obviously his most um, noted work is amusing ourselves to death about, about television in the, from the 1980s. So, you know, I, I think this is a really, um, a really valuable project. And I'm curious what, I mean, if, is there a way of capturing what these, these, this sort of lineage of these four thinkers offer today that's, largely missing from the the sort of standard conversations about these issues yeah you know I, I i sometimes joke that i've never had an original thought all i'm ever doing is sort of just repeating and reapplying um you know the work of uh scholars such as the one that you, that you listed um and that that's a very good question i you know there's um there's a sense in which even the the set of four that um that you mentioned would not even entirely agree with one another. Uh, Postman ended up being rather critical of, of some of Illich's views of schooling, for example, and um, I think to some degree grounded in a kind of misunderstanding of what Illich was saying. But, but I wouldn't say that they have a kind of a unified, um, you know, theory that they're advancing uh, or that they're all on the same page altogether. I, I think one thing that might um, knit them together, however, uh, might be a, a grounding in the past, right? So an understanding of the present uh, through a very um, uh, rich understanding of what has come before. Uh, and, and in the case of, um, certainly in the case of, of uh, Ilul and Illich even, I'm, I'm trying to think whether this is true of Postman or not, maybe not quite so of Postman, um, and, and to some degree of McLuhan, 
they were grounded not only in their own age, which is, which obviously precedes ours, um, although you know it overlaps with um, some of us depending on the age of our listeners, um, but it was grounded in even even further past. Um, you know, Illich um, was a a student of the twelfth century, right? This is the the epoch in which he chose to um, ground himself so as to get a better perspective of our present. Um, and he, he spoke very affectionately about his friends in the 12th century, like Hugh of St. Victor. Um, and uh, McLuhan as well, um, sharing with Illich um, a, a kind of common Catholic faith, uh, although I think their, their expressions of it might have been um, somewhat different. I, and, and it's even more veiled in McLuhan, I think, than it is in Illich. But this underlying um, a kind of underlying familiarity with Thomistic philosophy, with wholly foreign ways of seeing the world, um, and then bringing these to bear on the contemporary situation as a way of creating um, a, a background against which the figure of modernity appears more vividly or in, in, its, um, in its proper contours. And so that, that I think would be one thing that grounds them. Their experience and their thinking uh, in, in a variety of different ways was grounded in the past so as to make better sense of the present. And I think a lot of our contemporary discourse about technology um, it does not escape a kind of a, a presentism, right? All we know is what has happened in the immediate past. Um, I mean, we barely remember a decade ago uh, with regards to, you know, a lot of popular analysis of, uh, of technology. So this grounding in the past is one thing. And then I think each of these, um, would have said that there is some commitment uh, to, to an understanding of human flourishing that grounds their explorations of technology. Um, you know, for, for Illich, who has been most on my mind uh, over the past year, I think this is explicitly the case. Um, he, he's known primarily as um, a savage critic of modern institutions, as one popular blurb of his books has it. Uh, but um, one of the things that I try to emphasize is that he is a critic in the service of a, a good, right? It's not just that he is critical of institutions or reflexively anti-institutional. It's that he has some understanding of the conditions in which human beings flourish. And he is, he is critical of the institutions that undermine that or of the tools that undermine, the kinds of tools that undermine that. And so um, I, I've said in one of those old, old posts um, on the old blog that, um, you know, what animates the, the critic of technologies ought not to be, at least in my view, uh, just a, a curiosity about technology per se, uh, but technology being a means to an end, it should be some other end, right? So, um, you know, the, um, the, the critic that is animated by an ideology, a political ideology that he wants to, to see realized or she wants to see realized looks at technology in light of that larger um, goal that, that they want to see realized. And, and you can see that politically or religiously, um, the, the environmental critic uh, has the health of the environment as, a, as an end. And then their understanding of technology is always sort of re reflective of that. So in each of these cases, um, you know, in Illich, Alul, and McLuhan, certainly, there's an understanding, I think, of a tacit understanding of, of human flourishing that is animating their work. And, and I think that's, um, that's indispensable. I think we, we need that. Um, and, you know, in given um, sort of contemporary culture and uh, the, the number of contested accounts of the good life or you know, the way in which we, we lack a public um, sphere in which these conversations can be entered into fully, in, in the case of a lot of these thinkers, I think um, that was sort of always un, under 
the radar to some degree, but they're for those who have eyes to see, uh, so to speak. Um, not that I'm in, encouraging a, a kind of esoteric reading of them, but but I think this was the underlying um, question for them. And, and it ought to be for us, although uh, recognizing, of course, the challenge of doing that in any kind of uh, public context. I don't know if that all made sense, Philly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, going back to what you said about their, you know, it, yeah, I, I, I think part of what's interesting about this lineage or genealogy um, is, is precisely that it, it's not, um, it's certainly not a kind of uh, um, a space of uniformity or agreement, mm -hmm. right? That, and, and, you know, something I was thinking about is that I think before, you know, the, the two figures who I had some kind of sense of, even when I was, I mean, I remember actually having like amusing ourselves to death. Like my parents mm -hmm. had a copy around, like I remember yeah. seeing it as, a, and I, I thought it was like, oh, it's just one of these like kind of fuddy-duddy sort yeah. of, right. you know, people complaining about, um, about change and stuff. Right. Um, you know, and this is like my teenage impression of it, right? Like yeah. I, it was kind of this book that like my parents would occasionally refer to, right. um, you know, as like why they wouldn't let me watch TV. Or <laughs> um, but, yeah. but then, you know, the other figure who I, I'd say even going back like quite a long ways, I had some sense of was, McLuhan, right, mm -hmm. who whose reputation was almost the opposite, right, of of being a kind of um, a kind of prophet of a, a very positive vision of change yeah. that was associated with this more optimistic um, reception of of the the impact of television from an earlier period. So you know that that seems like an interesting um, an an interesting you know apparent opposition, um, at least in terms of the sort of popular reception of their their work. Right. And so the way that you're, I mean, kind of going back to the Kranzberg point, right? I, I think that the way that you're seeing a, a continuity between these at least superficially yeah. opposed yeah. figures would be that they're both kind of a, um, yeah. trying to make sense of this non-neutrality, right? This, right. Um, the, 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 the broader shifts that um, are associated with these changes that they can't be reduced to um, a simple judgment of good or bad. Um, so I don't know. I mean, have, I don't know if you've thought about that. I mean, again, this is like my superficial, yeah. like early impression of these two thinkers. But you know, it's it's notable to me that they they on on some level seem like opponents. Yeah, and 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 that's a that's a great point to address. I, I and I, I think you're right about the, the popular impression. Um, and McLuhan especially seems to me to be susceptible to to people having some vague impression of him, or you know, whether it's you know uh, Woody Allen pulling him out of uh, yeah, you know from right. behind the door, <laughs> um, or these catchphrases. Um, and that scene and, is actually about people having a false impression you of have him, no, right? Yeah, because it's yeah. like he. He's pulled out to correct the annoying exactly. guy in the like waiting right. waiting in line at the movies who's like pontificating about him. Exactly, you know nothing of my work, right? right? Is the line, yeah. Um, and so, um, and 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 I think he entered the zeitgeist most pronouncedly, um, you know, with these catchphrases that you know so many of us um, you know, are prone to use or be familiar with, and meeting this message uh, or the global village, and. Um, and then in the 90s, at the beginning of the internet era, um, you know, Wired, I think, uh, has a lot to do with the, the resuscitating of his, um, you know, cultural influence by naming him their patron saint. Um, and yes, I think I would say um, they know nothing of his work in a sense, right? Because he, uh, I can certainly see how there are elements of his work that if you were so inclined to kind of um, read it in a, in a 
you know, 60s era techno-utopian frame, uh, you, you might see it that way. You might, you know, be forgiven for taking it that way. But I think he was very clear, especially in interviews, that he was trying to understand. And I think this is really important of all these thinkers. Uh, and I think you alluded to it in your, in your question. They, they are trying, above all, to understand. They recognize that, you know, modern technology is radically reshaping uh, how human beings live, how they think, how they understand themselves, uh, their relationships to the world. Um, you know, it, it, it often occurs to me, I make a point of saying, what, what we think of as, as modern technology, if we sort of, um, you know, fix it in the, in the, mid, the starting point in the mid 19th century, maybe slightly earlier with the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, this is a, 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 an infinitesimally small blip on the screen of human history, right? Uh, and, and to say that we even have reckoned with the consequences of mid 19th century technologies, I think is, is mistaken to say nothing of how we are continuing to kind of alter that landscape uh, so rapidly. Um, in any case, I think McLuhan, uh, Postman and Lowell Illich, they, they were sensitive to, to those profound changes and, and sought desperately to understand them. Uh, and, uh, and McLuhan, I think, especially in his public writing, especially, uh, tried to simply help people understand without going to that question of judgment, uh, of, of moral judgment, of saying this is bad or good. But uh, then he, he'll say in an interview uh, something uh, like, he's asked, I think, you know, if, if, if he would like to go back to another age, you know, because a lot of these thinkers are always accused of being sort of reactionary and nostalgic for, for a golden age or whatever. And I think none of them were. Um, but McLuhan said, no, any age is fine uh, as, as long as it, you know, stay stable for, for a period of time. People will leave it alone, I think he says. Uh, and then he goes on to say something about, you know, most of the things I write about are things I'm against. Um, and, and the global village, which is this, you know, um, especially kind of gives off this very hippie-ish vibe. Um, McLuhan was, was adamant about the fact that you know, villages are not pleasant places. Um, they're, they're places of arduous interfaces, of conflict. Um, I think somewhere he says, you know, the, the, the hobby of village people is to slaughter each other. Um, so, so these were not uh, sort of utopian images um, for, for McLuhan. And, and I think he underlying it, there was um, perhaps a more critical spirit than what is evident in, in the writing, or certainly at least what, what I think the popular imagination, uh, how it perceives them. And McLuhan was, was Postman's great teacher, right? There's a direct lineage there, you know, far from being, um, you know, sort of polar opposites on this spectrum, um, you know, th there's a direct continuity between them, Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, again, that's, um, I, I think part of what's going, you know, th this was sort of my, uh, my superficial impression, which, you know, g goes back to, um, I mean, something else, which is that these thinkers, to the extent that they became, you know, significant public figures, particularly those two, um, were working within the sort of mediatic system that they were trying to understand. And, you know, that in some ways worked against the understanding that they were trying to offer. Um, in the sense that they they became um, you know I mean McLuhan became a kind of celebrity right yeah, um, yeah. and you know that's the context of his appearance in the, the Woody Allen movie and so on and obviously that um, that you know there's a kind of flattening there that interestingly is is the effect of the very phenomena yeah. that he's sort of right. in the process of trying to to make sense of yeah so. I mean, and th this yeah. is something that that interests me, um, and I think it was kind of implicit in what you were 
just just saying that you know I, one of the th- and this is very meta but you know one of the things i'm i'm always interested in is commenting on tech commentary mm-hmm. right and, yeah. and, and what's wrong with it right because yeah. I'd, I'd say actually like a lot of what motivated me to to start writing about similar issues to the ones that that you write about um, is is just that I saw, you know, other than than your work and a few other people's, like I saw just an incredible shallowness in the the standard um, tech commentary, and and what I felt like I was seeing was this immensely impactful set of changes and um, a real weakness in the the people who were kind of being given platforms to try to understand it, and you know, my my. Um, my sense of that over the past 10 years is like there's been a kind of flip where um, all of the outlets and even some of the same pundits who were sort of these, you know, celebrating the idea that, you know, social media was bringing democracy to the world, like around the time of the Arab Spring have become these kind of um, the, these dystopians who are, who are incredibly censorious and who are constantly demanding um that these platforms kind of um, curate their content according to whatever their standards happen to be. And so there's, there's a, you know, on one level, what, what looks like a, a radical um, sort of shift in perspective, but my, my general take on this is that it, it's, it's partly because the analysis was always so shallow that, um, that 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 hasn't changed, right? That that, that right. they're that what they're miss what they were missing ten years ago is largely the same thing as what they're missing today. Even though their comment their commentary seems to be um, almost the opposite of what it was. Right. Do you plug your own work on your podcast? You know, there's this great um, art sure. on the New Atlantis, yeah. There, yeah. right? The, yeah. the new net delusion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's that's what I was thinking of there. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. a great piece, and I, I think that's right. I think. Um, that that inability to see um, more deeply to understand these historical trends, um, and I don't know um, to have this anchor in some vision of human flourishing. Uh, also, I think plays some part of it, a uh, part in it. Um, so that's right. I, you know, I think I have nothing to add to that. I think you're you're at, you're, you're spot on on that. Um, it's interesting. The you know, I wonder. I, I just read a piece by um, a historian of technology, Lee Vinsel who um, was talking about offering this meta commentary about tech criticism. Um, and uh, I, I glossed it as, uh, you know, the first rule of tech criticism is don't buy the hype. Um, and, and in some regards, you know, it's just, it's, it's all, it's hype, right? What you described as sort of essentially hype, it, it's, you know, flipped its surveillance, you, you know, it's positive hype and then negative hype. Um, but it remains at that level, right? It's either, Silicon Valley and these new social media platforms are going to make uh, the world safe for democracy again, or they're going to destroy democracy. Um, and so at both poles, you're, you're operating at this level of rather superficial analysis and hype. Uh, in, in both cases, oddly enough, believing what the social media companies are, are, are going to say about themselves in terms of what they're capable of doing and, and what their uh, micro-targeting ads can accomplish, et cetera. Uh, but then just having a different um, take on whether it's going to be a net good or a net positive. Um, but right, yeah, grounded in an inadequate uh, and you know, insufficiently grounded understanding of, of what, what these tools do and how they interact with, with human society. And, and limited by a historical amnesia that's right. 
Um, you know, that's at the opposite pole of what you were describing about right. people like Ilul and Illich. That right. that is itself, you know, an effect of the the technologies yeah. that they're attempting to to talk about. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. So yeah. yeah. Go no, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna. Uh, yeah, I mean, my own sort of because of my like um, background, my sort of grad school background in being in uh, literature. You know, my my own sort of, um, I suppose, kind of intellectual genealogy was shaped by a somewhat different set of figures um, who I think are, at least in the academic context, quite um, quite significant. And and basically, you have on one hand Heidegger. And kind of everything that comes out of Heidegger, which includes a great deal of, you know, what goes under the heading of French theory, right, is mm-hmm. is essentially a, a kind of, and even quite different figures like Derrida and Foucault mm-hmm. are, are both um, heavily heavily influenced by by Heidegger, yeah. and then um, and then somebody like Agamben um, today, you know, who's who's been controversial recently, is is mm-hmm. another you know hugely figure is hugely impacted by Heidegger, and then on the other hand, you have the Frankfurt School, where you have this this notion of instrumental reason um, that that you know first comes out of um, dialectic of enlightenment and then is is developed elsewhere by further by Horkheimer, and so you know it, it seems to me there's kind of a um, and and then you know I, I think out of that you you get a certain um, version of a, a, a somewhat more um, celebratory you know initially out of heidegger and the frankfurt school you get this quite dark and foreboding vision of of technology right as as kind of leading us directly to auschwitz or something like that mm-hmm. um you know is is at least the kind of uh the kind of oversimplified meme version yeah. um but then but then as a sort of um complicated reaction to that you get this this sort of cultural studies the emergence of like cultural studies and, you know, kind of um, discussions of mass media and popular culture, you know, the sort of popular culture that's promulgated by mass media. That's that, you know, that, that becomes quite celebratory about its democratizing um, potential. And so that's, you know, to me, that's kind of the history of like the humanities over from something like the 1940s through about the mm-hmm. 1990s. And I, and I see a lot of, um, particularly the the cultural studies, the way that there was kind of a pushback against the Frankfurt schools, um, you know, account of, of mass culture as, as this kind of, um, you know, mass brainwashing or, you know, again, that's an oversimplified version, but, but, but (laughs) so, so this, this way that um, there, there was kind of a pushback of that, that, that I think still heavily inflects um, a lot of cultural commentary today um where the, this kind of celebratory understanding of mass culture as inherently democratic i think i think it remains the kind of dominant frame and and that did shape and that has sh- and i think it continues to shape some discussions of social media where you have um you know this weird <clears throat> kind of um flipping back and forth that i've discussed mm-hmm. where it's like you know it, it, it it's kind of alternatingly celebrated as democratic and then um and then and then switch back into being this kind of sinister uh, domain ruled over by evil oligarchs and so on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's kind of the, the frame that I first um, started approaching these issues from partly because of, that was my 
sort of academic training. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, in terms of the thinkers that you work with more, what you see is their relation to that, I'd say maybe more kind of still dominant strain in academia, which I think filters into a great deal of sort of more popular criticism and commentary. Yeah. Um, I, so the first thing that, that comes to mind is in terms of the trajectory you're describing um, is sort of a, a, a somewhat parallel trajectory in the fields that I'm a little bit more familiar with. Uh, interesting, the, the the PhD program I was a part of at the University of Central Florida was actually um, at, at the time that I was there um, in the English department. Uh, and so it, it had some of these uh, elements to it, certainly. Um, I was always sort of felt myself as being um, a little bit um, of, a, of a stranger in that milieu. My, my own interests were in the history of philosophy of technology, but um, in, in uh, history of technology specifically, thinkers like Heidegger uh, and Delul or Lewis Mumford, sort of these early critics that um, were speaking to technology before um, you know, STS was sort of formalized into a discipline or even history of technology was formalized into a discipline. Um, their, their work fell out of fashion um, in the 19, probably in the late 70s and, and certainly through the 80s um, in favor of um, uh, another approach that uh, took as its starting point to sort of granular studies of, um, you know, I, I, I think of um, uh, a historian who, who wrote a very granular study of um, the Harpers Ferry Armory and changes in uh, machine tooling that led to um, conflicts with older forms of, um, um, of um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, in development of, uh, of, of guns and working with steel. And, and it's, it's just, it looks at these very fine-grained studies and finds in these older sweeping claims about the effect of, uh, of technique, uh, for example, in Alul's work on society. Uh, to be insufficiently grounded in a more empirical understanding of what is actually happening. And so, you know, that that almost recreates sort of this um, hole in the philosophy of technology between determinism and, um, and voluntarism, right, where it's just human agency. And, and I think that there's, in my view, it, it's helpful to hold these two uh, in tension with one another, um, to value that granular study that, 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 grounds us in in what is happening at this micro level but the temptation i think to, to remain there is to to lose sight of the larger trends and i think part of the problem as well is that these, these older figures were seen um as being too uh prescriptive in their work uh, at least by implication of, of the of what they were critiquing you know um as you were describing as you were talking i was thinking of that popular meme meme with uh, Adorno's picture, you know, everything is bad. Um, and it's just a sort of characterization of um, the cranky old man who, who just doesn't like new things. Um, and so the, I, there, is, there is, at the end of the day, I think the necessity of making a kind of um, a value judgment. Um, and the, the, the point I would say is, is that that judgment needs to be, to some degree, um, grounded in as as thorough an understanding of the underlying dynamics as possible, right? So, if if the if the value judgment um, or the moral judgment uh, about the impact of the technology on society, on political culture, on individual lives, on human relations, or whatever, if it is just grounded sort of in a knee jerk, um, you know, pop culture is is necessarily good, right? Or 
or these old thinkers were um, you know, reactionaries, uh, then it's going to, I think, more often than not sort of go wrong, go astray. Um, but if, and then this was, I think, also part of McLuhan's point, it was, it was to see and understanding uh, a mode of, of resistance, but the understanding had to come first and understanding uh, required some work, some, some serious work. Um, and, and so in, I, I would resist for my own self, you know, my, my own way of thinking about this, any sort of knee-jerk reaction that's sort of grounded in, in a larger narrative about popular culture, whether it's, you know, emancipatory or whether it's, um, you know, leading us into very dark places, um, that may or may not be the case. But whatever one has to say about that, I think needs to be grounded in uh, in, in, a, in a serious understanding of the way these tools are working, and the fact that all of these institutions and, and social realities are deeply complicated. And I think this is um, you know, part of the problem with certain strands of, of tech writing is that it sees the, 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 the tools being the only sort of operant feature in in the dynamic. Um, you know, this tool is having this effect without recognizing the, the deeply complicated um, relation between the tool, existing social structures, cultural ideals, et cetera. Um, so I'm honestly not sure if I answered your question directly, right? But, um, but I, there are similar trajectories in the history of philosophy. And, and again, I think in, in, in my own thinking about this, um, the, the key is simply to, to do the work to bring the best analytic tools to bear on, on the problem, the, the situation, the technology in question. Um, and, and, and at the end of the day, to not uh, necessarily hesitate to make the moral judgment call, but also to recognize that that is going to depend upon um, the particular moral worldview of the person making, making that judgment. Um, you know. Yeah, this is um, <clears throat> making me think of your recent post on the paradox of control. Mm-hmm. which I think, you know, is, is actually drawing from a, a contemporary writer on these issues mm-hmm. rather than one of these um, yeah. older pre-internet ones. And I thought it was a, a particularly um, strong example of, of what your, you know, writing is often offering us. Um, so I wonder if you could explain that argument briefly mm-hmm. and just um, perhaps say why, why it feels valuable at the moment, yeah. um, that, that that you draw from Hartmut Rosa, yeah, right, and and so Hartmut Rosa is a German sociologist. This, um, I think, is the the last book that he's put out. It's it um, it's in a sense the third in a kind of unofficial series of three books, right? Unofficial trilogy of sorts. Um, and in in this particular book, uncontrollability of the world uh, is the title of it, and. Rosa here, I think, is uh, heir to a, a long tradition in sociology that sees in the modern Western techno-scientific project the desire to control nature, uh, to, to bring as much of reality under human control as possible. Um, and then he's exploring um, the paradoxical consequences of that. Um, the paradox, in short, is that you, you end up experiencing the world as both more distant from you and and less satisfying, offering uh, less to the human being that seeks something from the world, and then also simultaneously becoming more uncontrollable in a sense. Um, So the the underlying premise that we deploy technology to bring more and more of the world under our control, and and he develops a, 
a rather broad view of control that means making it accessible, making it manageable, bringing value out of it, all these sort of aspects of what it means to, to, to bring um, the world under our control. And, and he gives it a, a both a sort of a structural sociological spin and then also um, a kind of cultural values spin. And, and so sociologically, uh, it's sort of grounded in um, the understanding of modern institutions as being um, stabilizing dynamically. In other words, modern uh, Western societies are, are stable only if they are growing. Um, and if they are not growing, they become unstable. And so we have this impetus to bring more things under political, economic, technological control is just some, uh, uh, to feed the growth uh, in those areas. And then culturally, um, he would say that, you know, we, we have, if we think about the good life, it's in having as much of the world as possible, uh, you know, not being content with our own little uh, slice of it, but wanting to bring more and more of it, um, you know, to experience more and more of it. So both of these sort of lead us to um, design and implement and value and buy and purchase tools that promise to bring as much of the world under our control as possible, our own lives. You know, digital technology, I think, um, you know, doubles down on this in many respects by, because so much of control depends on uh, our ability to measure and to uh, ostensibly manage things. And so, you know, the sleep tracker that tells you, you know, how, how well you're sleeping and, and encourages you to kind of manage that in order to, you know, to make that better and to bring it under your control. Uh, you know, again, having passed through, you know, early childhood, uh, or really still in it, you know, how many um, tech, digital technologies sort of offer the parent this r remarkable uh, capacity to sort of measure um, the the temperature, the heart rate of their infants while they're sleeping, and to pull, you know bring that right to your app so you can always be uh, alerted of it. Um, we can just multiply. I, I, it seems to me we can multiply examples and examples again. And and the paradox, you know, I I certainly read this resonated with me um, because I had already sort of experienced uh, part of this paradox, which is that these just uh, lead to greater anxiety. Right. Uh, anything you can measure, you know, it's long seemed to me is is potentially a new source of anxiety for somebody. Right. So they're, they're wanting to alleviate anxiety. Uh, but the very tool um, what, uh, Rosa calls a, a para um, th that we develop ways of, of measuring parameters, uh, parametrization. It, it generates a kind of anxiety, a loss, of, a sense of a loss of control, um, because you re you recognize there are things you cannot control, right? <laughs> inevitably, um, and then you've you've alienated yourself from those uh, realities that you've sought to control and understand in this very narrow scientific way. You know, throughout that post, I, I said several times, this is, you know, Illich was saying essentially these things in another way, you know, 50 years ago, um, and. And at, at the heart of this, and, and, and again, this is why this particular uh, book uh, I found valuable. It's one of these books that I found valuable because it essentially said what I already thought, right? And so, uh, but I thought it was, the way he said it was useful and, uh, and brought a little bit more uh, sort of detail to it. Um, it, and it. But it's useful, or I, I valued it because they're, you know, like Heidegger says, although I try not to, you know, um, rely too much on, on Heidegger, but the, the point that the essence of technology is nothing technological, I think, is is extremely valuable. Um, so, what matters about modern technology at the end of the day to me is not this tool or that tool, but it's the way that the whole it generates a system and which becomes our whoop and warp and, and a warp and, uh, warp and then kind of 
shapes us unknowingly, um, determines, again, how we see the world, how we value it, uh, and very often undermines um, the, the, the very dispositions and relations that we require for, for human flourishing, even broadly understood. And so to me, fundamentally, um, and, and this is one of the sort of moral judgment calls or moral uh, values that, that underline my work, is that there's a, a way of, of relating to the world in the way we are encouraged to by modern technology in, in the mode of, of control, right? I'm gonna control, master, um, manage, plan. And that's that's has certain virtues and it. it can do certain good for us. But if, if that's the dominant mode of relating to the world, it, I see it as opposed to this way of relating to the world fundamentally as a gift, something given. Um, you know, Illich expresses this in certain ways. Wendell Berry, who's also been very influential for me, does a good job of, uh, of uh, articulating this more poetically. Um, and so that in this particular book, in Harmut Rose's book, what I, what I saw, what I encountered was a way of articulating this um, in in the language of, of sociology, uh, but but also exploring the mechanisms uh, by which we f- we feel this frustration. His underlying premise is that we, we feel frustrated by the world. The more we try to bring, the more it, it falls silent and mute to us, um, and and we feel increasingly alienated. And not only from from the world as in you know, sort of the natural world, but I think even from one another, right, to the degree that we begin to see human beings themselves as just standing reserved for our own projects of personal fulfillment, et cetera, right? And, um, and I think even in our human relations, um, the, the digitization of human relations has made it possible to, to control them, to manage them in a way, uh, to not allow for what Illich um, you know, frequently described as simply the surprise, right, the possibility of surprise. Um, in many respects, we don't want to be surprised. We want to know exactly what we're getting, and we'll value only what we think we want. And and you know, we we deploy our tools to kind of keep the world at bay, as it were. Um, the we here obviously is very generic, um, you know, and, and this is not sort of a universal condition. But I do see it as as a tendency uh, built into the modern sort of techno social configuration. And certainly it, it taking the shape of a, of a temptation that uh, we become increasingly susceptible to and that we have to sort of work at to resist if, of course, we're interested in resisting it, right? Yeah, no, I I mean, going back to my sort of gene, intellectual genealogy I was describing, you know, I mean, to me, this resonates a lot with the, the Frankfurt School kind of in, instrumental reason account as well as some of Heidegger, as you brought up, but it, it also um, sort of brings it close to our contemporary experience in a way that I think is, is really valuable. Um, yeah. And also, and points to some dimensions of it that are, you know, that are, that are somewhat different from in, in sort of tenor from the original um, accounts of that. Yeah. Um, there was a section in the book, uh, you know, and I, I, be, I began sort of trying to sort of summarize the work, present the argument. And I realized, you know, that um, I, had, I had hit like 2000 words and I was only like 10% into the book. So I had to better, I had, you know, I better speed it up a bit. So there was one section in the book where he, he walks through sort of the life stages um, of um, infancy and then childhood, um, uh, you know, early adulthood and, and finally old age and death and, and, and sort of explores how 
contemporary tools sort of impact our attitudes towards what is happening in these stages and in the way it shapes our understanding of it and how this dynamic that he's laid out theoretically sort of plays itself out in these different very concrete ways. Um, and I think, um, you know, modern readers or you know, read, readers will take up Rosa and, and, um, and find a lot that resonates, I think, with their, uh, with their experience in a way that I think would be, would be helpful and illuminating. The other part that I got a lot out of was this point about dynamic stabilization, mm -hmm. which, as you said, is, is something that is obviously central to, to Illich's work, although not, not in those exact terms. But, um, it, you know, so this paradoxical idea that um, our societies uh, achieve stability only by remaining, by, by growing, right, by mm -hmm. expanding, by, by constantly, right. um, constantly kind of continuing to develop in some way. Um, and, you know, this struck me in relation to a, a figure I'm sort of, I've been, who's been central to like a lot of my writing um, is uh, Peter Thiel, mm -hmm. who has an interesting account of this, um, which I think, you know, also ties into to an element of it that would differentiate, I'd say, the, the sort of early 21st ver century version of that from perhaps the early 20th century version of that, which is which is something like this. Um, so dynamics, so, so Thiel's idea is essentially that, you know, our societies risk collapse if they can't make these kind of zero, what he calls zero to one um, developments, right, which are, which are these kind of, um, th these technological paradigm shifts, right, that, that bring about a, a sort of um, huge um, transformation, sort of transformative growth that, um, that kind of takes us to another level, right? And, you know, part of what he's saying here resonates with what um, economists have been saying that, you know, if, if you go back to the, the sort of major um, inventions of the um, basically from the late 18th century, but particularly the 19th century through the first half of the 20th century, um, these inventions bring about a type of growth and a type of change in people's lives that is not paralleled by most of the post-war post technologies and particularly not, not paralleled by, by the mediatic technologies that, you know, have now become basically when we talk about technology, mm -hmm. we mean media technology, right? Um, so, so there's this idea that part of what afflicts, you know, that the teals, um, and this is why he's into space exploration and various other things. Um, part of his idea is that, you know, the, the, um, I mean, his terminology is like bits versus atoms, right? Um, because our innovation is only taking place in bits, but in order to have a genuine sort of dynamic restabilization what we need is innovation in the form of atoms right that would that would be equivalent to the the huge leaps that we made in an earlier time right and this is consistent with you know some economists arguments that you know if you look at our sort of productivity growth um you know it it simply doesn't um you know despite all the flashiness of the various technologies that have been um released in the past several decades, they don't offer anything like what, what some of these earlier technologies did. And so what I'm getting out of all of this is that we might think of what we're experiencing now as a kind of fake dynamic stabilization, where we're actually reaching for these technologies that, that provide a kind of simulacrum. And, you know, this would be a, a, also 
a sort of postmodern distinction, um, you know, that would, would be pitting essentially post-industrial against industrial economies. Um, that, that essentially what, we, what we're experiencing is a kind of si- simulacral um, dynamic stabilization, mm-hmm. right, that, um, that only achieves a kind of um, phantom stability that, mm-hmm. that is far more tenuous and threatened. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the, the doubts that could be raised about that is that, you know, well, if you go back to the Heidegger and the Frankfurt School, who I've been bringing up again and again, well, you know, what they were concerned with was the trajectory by which those um, those very uh, you know tech, um, transformative technologies that that Teal, but also some economists kind of look back to, you know, led to um, you know the atom bomb, mm-hmm. the concentration camp, and so on. Right? That 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 there was a kind of um, there was a, a a self-destructive or kind of self-annihilating right. um, trajectory that was built into those also, mm-hmm. but. You know, so that that's maybe a, a a doubt that I have, even as I'm I'm sort of yeah. um, hypothesizing here. But yeah. you know, it it does seem like we might think about what we're what we've experienced, kind of um, you know, in our lifetimes as as a kind of series of of efforts in this direction of dynamic stabilization that that are not even sufficiently dynamic, right? Yeah, right. Um, so yeah. I don't know if that. Um, I mean, again, this is this is extremely hypothetical, and I, I'm not even sure. Um, you know, I think I think there are a lot of uh, questions that could be raised about it, but but it does resonate again with these arguments made by someone like Teal and um, some of these people who are trying to shift the focus away from essentially away from media technologies and towards these other types of technological transformations that they would argue provide a more substantial stabilizing dynamism but but they would still want uh, in, in other words the underlying premise would still be that uh we we must grow just in this other dimension along this other axis in order to to remain stable right exactly yeah, yeah right and, and i right and I, I think um you know who someone like illich would 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 say you're you're still essentially operating under um ultimately um, self-defeating assumptions, right? That that the the alternative um, for Illich, it, it, at least at one phase of his career uh, in the early '70s, when he wrote Tools for Conviviality, um, which is the one book in which he lays out what you know some might see as, as the, the closest he comes to sort of saying, here's a kind of political social vision that forms an alternative to in, industrial productivity. Um, and I think what what he would advocate for is a more traditional um, account of society where we we don't require growth to stabilize. Um, and I, I think, you know, Illich recognized one, even at that point, I mean, he, he grows um, a little disillusioned, uh, a lot disillusioned with even the prospects of achieving that. Um, and that leads him onto, along other lines intellectually. Um, but uh, even at that point, he, he recognizes that you it's not that you're sort of, um, becoming entirely uh, de-industrialized, right? So it has to be the role of industrial technology of growth needs to be balanced um, given his understanding of what human beings sort of require, the rate of change that is hospitable to human flourishing, et cetera. Uh, and, and, and certainly for the environment even, right? That uh, unlimited growth he saw is eventually leading to environmental degradation um, and, and that it was a myth, right? You, you could never get to the point where 
you were going to provide uh, a kind of bourgeois middle-class existence to all 7 billion people on earth. Uh, it, and so there was, there was some radical change that had to happen in terms of what we expected, what we were willing to, um, the temptation I think from one side would be to say what we were willing to sort of settle with. But I think Illich's point would be that it's it's at the end of the day you would find it's not a settling with right that um, we we're sort of stuck in an economic an economic mode that must produce ongoing human dissatisfaction in order to proceed uh, in order to continue to grow which it needs to do um, in order to to sort of stabilize and so you know Illich thought that what was required is again just a fundamental reordering. Uh, of how we conceived of what would amount to a, a, a good human life, but also a, a good social life and a good relation to um, the larger environment of which we were a part. And, and in his view, it could, it could not be premised upon unlimited growth. Uh, it had to find some other way. And uh, I think Illich understood how deeply complicated such a transition would be, the costs that would be entailed by such a transition, and how unlikely it was going to be. But in his view, it's either sort of consciously make that transition uh, or else sort of, uh, he has a line to where he says, you know, sort of um, manage the, the unfolding disaster in a belatedly technocratic manner, right? Um, and I don't know, that seems that that line resonates to some degree with our present situation. Um, so um, he, like I said, he sort of became disillusioned with the possibility of, um, of re having that realized um, and, you know, the the mood of the late 60s and early 70s passes. And, and Illich recognizes that he has to undergo, he has to, to go down another path, um, which is to sort of understand the certainties, what we call the certainties that make such a transition to a more convivial mode of life um, um, unappealing or implausible to people. And, and then eventually leads him to understanding how technology sort of shapes our perception um, and our understanding of the body. And so that's sort of the trajectory he goes on. But um, I, I, I tend to, it, it, this sort of seems right to me. So I'm not an economist, so I don't pretend to sort of understand, um, you know, economic theory or, or to be able to speak to it intelligently. Um, but from, a, again, from a certain understanding of, of the human person, of, of human uh, society, it, it seems to me that reconfiguring what we think we need uh, and, and this was again, a major project of villages is sort of doing archaeology, a genealogy of, of, of neediness and recognizing that the problem with so many modern institutions is that it, they generated neediness um, so that they generate demand for themselves. This was at the heart of his critique of, of modern medicine, modern education. Um, and so it leads to a disempowerment. We feel ourselves increasingly unable to, to do stuff. So it almost tracks to some degree, I think, um, I see how it could be linked with this um, virtualization of our experience, right? Where, you know, the, the dynamic you were describing, where we now have a kind of simulacra of, of growth, you know, in some respects, we are being offered sort of this, uh, this trade-off, right? You, you have increasingly sophisticated tools to manipulate virtual realities, and we are increasingly sort of alienated from the world of atoms and and enfleshed sort of human relationships and local communities and uh, and we certainly don't know uh, how to care for ourselves we increasingly depend on all sorts of service providers and professionals um in, in talking about this recently i was um 
a student gave me the example of how they had had somebody in their workplace pass away and um, they, you know, he, he wanted to kind of talk with some colleagues about this experience. And, and one of them said, well, no, we can't, we can't do that. There's no counselor present, right? We, we have to wait for the counselor. Um, and it's the sense that we cannot care for ourselves without the professional assistance of the certified um, expert in the field. And, and so this is all, uh, you know, I, I feel like listeners may think that I've gotten way, afield, you know, far afield from the you know, original discussion here, but I think it's, it's, it's related, right? It's the question of generating needs, of, of needing, of becoming increasingly needy, unable to, to care for ourselves, that fuels the growth of the service industry, right? So it's, it's, it moves from, you know, industrial production of wares and goods, where we just need more stuff, to we need more services, to we need... Um, more virtual realms in which to um, sort of ostensibly, you know, find the, the the social connections that were previously eliminated by the the developments of the of the previous gen, you know generation of technological uh, tools. So how do we countervail that? Um, I think this is why Illich thought you know we the the answer is is to to go back to just the, the fundamental human encounter, learn to revalue that. And and build up from there again. Um, and in 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 a lot of ways, each of these um, these older thinkers, I think, you know, even if they don't speak in quite the same way that Illich does, or or, or their their analysis may differ here and there, um, there is this you know fundamental value of, of the, the the human encounter and um, and human relationships that happen in a, a humans at a human scale that becomes really fundamental. And um, I think that would be another sort of key component of what brings them together. Um, yeah. Yeah. Another kind of neediness that seems uh, significant today, which relates to some of what you've been writing about is um, the kind of need for someone else to tell you what to think in a sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, and not, not that that's something unique to our age, but um, the way that sort of opinions form in these digital kind of simulacral social spaces mm-hmm. um and this uh and and so the way that the way that essentially you have to in order to like comprehend an event you have to log on in order to see what yeah. people are saying about it um and this is you know it, it works differently from you know we might i mean what's what's i suppose ironic about this is you know, we have this image of like times in the past where there were some, you know, unquestionable authorities who told people what to think. Um, but of course, we've just kind of spontaneously recreated that in a way that's arguably more oppressive now than it's than it's ever been. Um, although, in, but but it's oppressive partly in the the way that it's on one hand generative of these um, these harsh sort of orthodoxies. But also the way that those orthodoxies are are sort of fragmented and localized, and um, don't don't create any kind of larger sense of coherence <clears throat> for the society or the culture. But in fact, the opposite, right? They, yeah. they create this constant sense of of ever intensifying um, opposition. And you know, so so this is the, the this kind of need that's been created by these these platforms that that has to do with kind of how we apprehend and think about the world um, suddenly being dependent on being able to look at what other people are already saying. And that, you know, one of the effects of this is this 
this kind of destabilization, um, you know, is not a, a sort of, um, uh, it's it's not a total uniformity of opinion, but it, but it is a, an extremely harsh localized uniformity of opinion. Um, but but in which the the sort of narratives and um, and and sort of orthodoxies are are formed in opposition to yeah. um, sort of enemy viewpoints. Right. So I mean, this kind of takes me back to another of your posts that I found particularly valuable in the past year, which was the narrative col- narrative collapse which you wrote um, kind of in the, in the midst of the, the COVID moment. Um, as I recall, I, I, I wish I had the date right in front of me. Um, what, I can't remember exactly when in the course of 2020, which is itself symptomatic yeah, yeah, of right. the very thing that you're describing there. June, um, I think. Yeah, June. So it was yeah. COVID plus George Floyd. Um, yeah. You know, and, and a time when I think a lot of us just felt uh, felt this. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to what you also achieve in that paradox of control essay, you know, I, I think part of what, part of why I recommend your work so often to people is just because it's, it's very good at taking these ideas and bringing them down to the level of just how we feel um, in a very visceral day-to-day way. So I wonder if you could recap that narrative collapse argument and perhaps you revisited it in a post you did after the Capitol riot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's interesting because it's partly about this kind of fragmentation and nonlinearity and, um, you know, so going back to it uh, nine months later is, is also kind of a chance to, to, to try to pick up a thread that, that itself has yeah. in some way kind of been, um, been lost in the the constant churn. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess I'm just wondering, you know, if you could recap it and then also talk about perhaps how how your thinking has has maybe evolved or or in what ways you've come back to it more recently. Yeah, you know that um, what I have found useful for myself in writing about tech um, is is to allow myself to be my own um, you know guinea pig or um, you know point of analysis, as it were. And to sort of just observe myself and what I am feeling and what I am thinking, how, you know, taking in, for example, uh, as so many of us do now, what is happening through social media, through the Internet, um, you know, what is the effect of that? Right. Um, and or how, how might it have been different from previous experiences? And so in this particular case, the database and the narrative, um, it, the opposition between them, the, the idea here was simply that when we when we encounter so if we, if we think about, you know, maybe our fathers or grandfathers, um, you know, sitting down to find out what happened today by reading the evening newspaper uh, or turning on the evening news, what they're encountering at that point is already, um, it, it takes the shape of, of a narrative loosely understood, right? There's uh, an, an event that has been to some degree made sense of and packaged and interpreted. It has been given uh, beginning, middle, and end, or you know, causes, event, consequences, sort of structure, and 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 you you read it, you listen to Mr. Cronkite telling you what happened, and and now you've you've got you know an understanding of the event that has been pre-narrativized for you, as it were. It seems to me that what happens uh, more uh, recently is is very different from that, right? So I'll, I'll just take the um, you know the capital rise as an example of that, you know. So I'm sitting at my desk working, 
and make the mistake of checking on Twitter, which is a mistake I make often. And uh, and I begin to see just you know one little post about it, you know, just get the sense that something's happening. And I become increasingly tuned into it. It kind of dominates the feed. But what I am seeing is not a story. It's not a narrative. Um, but it's a, it's a countless numbers of, of you know, a, a disparate data points, essentially, right? Um, and so in that way, in a way that's not quite precisely accurate, you know, I, this is how I use the database image. It's, it's that I'm encountering um, the, not quite the raw data, right? In, in, in some important ways, it's not raw data, but, but it is um, data that is not pre-framed for me, as it were, right? And even if I encounter a, a pre-framed version of it, the database experience precedes it, right? So that, that, that uh, you know, somebody is attempting to, to give it a narrative spin, it is only one of many, uh, of several, and, it, and it, it is competing. It's just one point along with the uh, cell phone video that, you know, the several cell phone video first person, you know, accounts of what's happening, uh, the, the uh, fake elements of it, right? So another, and what I mean by that is that there were immediately pictures circulating, I think uh, specifically the picture of a cross on, on the Capitol grounds that was purported to be of the event, but in fact was not of that event, but was, you know, had been taken months before. And so you're, you're trying to filter out, you know, what is, what is, what is not part of this event in fact happening right now, you're getting raw, raw footage of it, um, you know, and then immediately the layer of commentary is building and all of this is happening within, you know, 30 minutes of your becoming aware of it. And, and so you've, you've encountered this um, database of, of disparate points of information and media without it having already been sort of neatly bundled for you in this narrative form. I compare this, um, uh, you know, a friend of mine that I work with who may or may not end up listening to this uh, and will recognize himself if he does. Uh, you know, he he later tells me about how, you know, he got home and he, he sort of vaguely aware of something happening, but he turned to, to television and radio to kind of help make sense of it. And, and he just wanted somebody to tell him, you know, well, what, what happened? Um, in other words, he was, he was wanting that older mode of delivery of information transfer. This is what happened. Here are the events. It's all very neatly packaged for you. And this is, um, you know, that that more narrative presentation of it. Uh, meanwhile, I've already sort of encountered a dizzying array of, of, of information. And in these situations, and, and the capital ride is just one case of this, you know, I think of almost any sort of event that that is happening in sort of quote unquote real time of any prominence, it, it it quickly gets spun, uh, not spun, excuse me, it quickly gets um, mediated by so very so many different participants or non-participants and becomes part of the feed that if if you have a kind of generalized openness, right, to what is happening and you're willing to hear the various accounts of what is happening, perspectives of it, it I think becomes um, um, overwhelming, right? It, it's, it's affectively overwhelming. If, if it's an emotionally charged subject, uh, it is intellectually overwhelming. And so inevitably, you, the, the, the safer route, as it were, is to, is to default, as you described, to what are the people that I already sort of agree with and, and align myself with saying about this? And that becomes your default position, right? And, um, and so you, you, re, you retreat into these uh, sort of niche sort of uh, grouping narrative groupings that, that you will you'll identify with uh, and they will to some degree help you kind of make sense of that but they're they're not one or two of these right they're, there's an undisclosed number of these right and so you get uh, a hardening of these individual stories because in a sense or, or sort of narrative communities if you will um, because they're helping you make sense of an otherwise sort of 
uh, imponderable present that uh, you know if you just sort of trust your own resources, you'd be overwhelmed by. Uh, but they're they've, they've multiplied, right? And and so you have you've lost the sort of larger consensus, right? There's there's no capital N narrative that everybody is sort of you know going to arrive at um, culturally, socially, you know, in um, in, and we might think broadly as you know the American American culture, American um, society. You're just going to have a proliferation of niche understandings of this that are located uh, not so much in place or um, in in distinct communities, but in distinct online um, venues and forums and you know subreddits or whatever. However, these groupings sort of evolve, um, and so I think that that's a way of understanding what it is like to experience the world through digital media. It is primarily defined by the idea of a database that you may try to do your best to kind of work through. And then it generates, you know, what I've uh, sort of talked about is the, the sense that, we, you know, we're everybody's a conspiracy theorist from somebody else's point of view, right? Um, because we all are trying to kind of draw the red line to all these facts and say, look, here's the pattern. And and it's entirely plausible for somebody else with a you know different run through the database to to see a different pattern, and each of us to seem as if we're just sort of wildly maniacal to the other. Um, and then the degree to which we buy into a community that sustains us, because you know the image of the conspiracy theorist is sort of the lone individual who's got this crazy idea, and and, and the rest of society sort of says, well, you know, no, that's obviously wrong or, or misguided. Um, but we we will very easily find others that see the same pattern, and and that'll be our sort of community. And and then you know, occurred to me, it's not that we're all conspiracy theories to one another; it's that we're all cultists to one another, right? We all got our little. Um, cult that we belong to and to, 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 you know, in the sense that how others will perceive us, right? You know, we've, we've bought into this idea of, you know, and it's not just that we have a take, it's that we have a view of reality that, that becomes wildly different. Um, and so that's, uh, that's sort of the essence of that post. And, and I think it, um, you know, to, to me, it remains um, a, a frame that I return to, again, again, to sort of understand my own experience, but also to sort of understand the dynamics that are are driving contemporary you know, discourse, um, and and even the question of, of journal. You know, I applied this to sort of the running debate about journalism. Um, it, it seems to me that you know we no longer see journalism uh, as providing information because the information now is is it's essentially on offer. This is to say nothing of the fact that there is, of course, hard investigative work that needs to be done and is valuable. And that you know, just because I have access to the internet doesn't mean that I have you know access to everything a, a, you know an intrepid journalist might be able to discover. But my sense is is that I can get the facts of an event um, as it is happening. So I don't need you know the Times or the Post or the Tribune or whatever to tell me what is happening. And so the narrative function is foregrounded. And so you you know the 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 giving the providing of the narrative sort of becomes the the foregrounded aspect of what is happening in journalism. The gathering of facts is backgrounded, at least in the, in the, the impression that I think people are beginning to develop. But when we, when we see it that way, then it's increasingly likely that we're going to see this at, because we think of narrative as being motivated, biased, and thus we will see something like the Times, not as the paper of record, right, but as the paper of record for the coastal elite or whatever kind of you know, jargon we might use to, to, to characterize what we're, you know, how we, how we perceive it, you know, and it sort of furthers this idea that we are just splintering into 
our kind of niche communities, um, you know, that um, our, our own, I think I, I owe this phrase to John Askinos, you know, our, our own sort of cinematic universes essentially, right? And um, and it's easy, I think, for some people to sort of assume that, you know, their, their ideological opponents are in a cinematic universe, but it, in a sense, we all are in, in this sort of database framing of it. Yeah, and I think, you know, something also valuable about this and, and about your perspective is, um, you know, there's a certain, uh, I guess, simplified version of this argument, which would be the one that, you know, idealizes the Cronkite era, right, which we've heard mm-hmm. a lot of since yeah, 2016. Right. And, you know, I think I think one value in, in a simple sense of having an understanding of what people like, um, you know, people from Elul to Postman were arguing is that, you know, there were there were plenty of um, there were plenty of problems with that, right. that sort of media ecology right. too. And right. there were plenty of people um, very articulate, very articulately analyzing those problems at the time. And so if you, you know, it, 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 there's sort of been this, you know, the attempt to compare those two eras that we've seen mm-hmm. in the popular, I mean, usually in a very motivated way mm-hmm. coming from these sort of, um, you know, gatekeepers of opinion type mm-hmm. um, type institutions has basically, you know, been a, a sort of narrative of the fall, which which you yes. often see. Um, in in te- you know, I I was going to bring this up earlier actually, but but it's interesting to me the way that the sort of biblical narrative of the fall is is still yeah. pretty much one of the one of the sort of you know master myths for this whole yeah. body of discourses that we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes one of these narratives of the fall, right? Where where right. you have this previous era represented as somehow Edenic, um, mm-hmm. and then this this sort of snake in the garden that that tempts us away from right. that. And so, you know, I, I think part of the value of of the way you frame it is that it, um, you know, again, it's it's a sort of Kranzbergian framing where, right? Um, what what you're trying to figure out is what is what is non-neutral about both dispensations, right? right. And, and the ways that both enable certain um, conditions, but also, um, but also disable or, or suppress other possibilities. Right. Yeah. Right. And, so, and I think, you know, I, I find that um, I find that a really valuable framing for that reason. Right. And, I, you, and it's a good point that I think it's lost sight of often, right? The, the era of mass media had its, had its problems. Um, and it, it, and it's a kind of uh, aberration, right? It's an aberration of that particular techno-social configuration, um, where you know you had four networks sort of dominating the most popular medium that Americans would turn to. You know, aside from the newspaper, perhaps you know. Um, but um, but it's it yeah, it had its own issues. It's not. It wasn't a kind of golden age. And so the the, the point again is is to attempt to understand. Um, you know, and, and this is you know my best effort at understanding the present dynamics um, and and by way of contrast with that earlier era but, but not by way of sort of saying that's what we need to get back to if for no other reason than that it is impossible to get back to right uh, it, you know there is no there's no turning back to that you know? so to wrap up uh, kind of returning to something you were saying about Illich you know that that he did in the um, tools for conviviality offer a, a, a more positive vision, um, which which he then 
increasingly despaired about somewhat later in his career. You know, it's notable to me that your um, your current substack is um, the Convivial Society. So you are kind of harking back to that more um, cautiously optimistic Illich. And I'm curious if kind of from an Illichian point of view or just more broadly, there's anything that you're currently hopeful about or or any... Um, any areas where you see see developments that that might um, at least offer offer possibilities that are mm-hmm. that yeah. are um, that are that are somewhat more somewhat more hopeful. Yeah. So uh, just to uh, to clarify, I don't I don't know that Illich ever despaired uh, precisely, but I think he he certainly began to recognize the the magnitude of the challenges presented to his vision. Right, uh, and in a sense, he. I think he continues to pursue that vision for for conviviality, and so his idea of conviviality, you know, has can be seen at various scales. It's fundamentally grounded in the um, the, the empowerment of the individual. So part of a convivial tool for Illich is one that we use rather than one that uses us, as it were. Um, it's easily understandable. Um, you know, the individual can uh, can deploy it to his own ends. We're, and we're not required by uh, a technological system to operate it in a certain way or to a certain end, et cetera, et cetera. So that you can think about, you know, there I think he's offering in, in tools for conviviality, ultimately a kind of possibility for an alternative society, a convivial uh, society as opposed to an industrial society. And the, the obstacles to that, like I said, become much more pronounced in his view, but, but there is still a possibility of at a, at a smaller scale, uh, finding convivial relations, right, or trying to adopt a, con- a convivial way of life um, as a, as an individual, as a family, as a as a much smaller sort of uh, media at, at the level of the mediating institution. Um, you know, as Peter Berger's language, uh, perhaps, or um, uh, possibly Bella's language, but it, it's it's about the scale. So I I think too that you know I I, I try to make the point with regards to hope. You know, use the word hope. Um, Illich, for example, um, tells us that we we need to have hope as opposed to planning, and this is related to his the earlier distinction I mentioned. You know how we receive the world is the world something we're just going to manage and thus uh, manipulate to our own ends? Because if so, then you don't hope that is an operant in those conditions, right? Uh, Illich was a, a Catholic priest, and although he was a very unconventional one in many respects and, and fell afoul of the hierarchy, he remained a Catholic priest and um, and so his thinking about hope, um, as as is mine, is is not grounded in in what um, we can necessarily do for ourselves, our capacity to manage the world, um, and, and and again, so I recognize that's sort of limited in, in its applicability, you know, certainly to the to the larger audience that I tend to write to, um, but I I wouldn't say then necessarily, you know, that. The, the distinction I would make is that even if at times I'm not optimistic, I'm always hopeful, but there, you know, there, there are personal reasons for that that aren't, again, uh, transferable, easily transferable. I think to answer your question more directly, though, um, I, I have begun to wonder whether or not um, we, we've passed through a period in this past year where early on, and, and some of my posts from last March or April kind of suggested that, that there is an opportunity um, to see the the, the the problems with the way we have been operating, um, whether it's in terms of sort of work-life balance or who we valued in society, what roles we valued, um, or the way we had sort of built up our relationship to nature that made 
something like the appearance of, uh, of the coronavirus more likely, um, you know, the, the faults in the way we thought about healthcare, um, how we thought about school, which became evidently just a place to put kids while parents work, um, et cetera. So there, there's this moment of clarity, an apocalyptic moment, right, in the literal sense that it reveals, it discloses. Um, and then, you know, uh, the culture wars sort of took over uh, and swallowed this up into their own dynamics. Um, but I think even as we now begin to perhaps, you know, uh, it seems to move beyond uh, the crisis phase of the, of the pandemic. Um, I think some, at least in some pockets, that that moment of of this disclosure of seeing the, the problems that we deal with, the the problem with the assumptions of growth, unlimited growth, um, and the ways in which we had organized family life and social life, the real, you know, you, you can't unsee those. I think in, in a lot of people maybe go on and pretend as if those things never happened and just kind of default back to those earlier modes. And, and there's that language of kind of returning to normal. And then those would say, no, we, we, we thought normal wasn't working. So so I think there still maybe remains at a smaller scale than, than what some uh, hoped for at the beginning of the pandemic. It still remains a sense that some people are going to see uh, things differently. Um, and maybe out of that, Will come the possibility of, of reimagining what our what our tools can do for us. You know, Illich was never anti-technology. I mean, he makes this very clear at countless places. Um, but what kinds of tools? What you know? How do we? How do they? Do they empower or make us needy uh, and and disempower us and de-skill us, et cetera, et cetera? Not only in terms of our labor, but even again, in terms of our capacity for care and human relation. All of this to say is that um, yeah, I, I think that maybe some some there might be the seeds have been planted uh, in, in the imaginations of at least some people in some communities uh, to imagine things differently. And and I won't say that I'm optimistic, uh, or I, I might not even say that I'm, I'm hopeful because those aren't the sources of my hope. But I am willing to be surprised, which is an, another Illichian, um, you know, uh, sort of formulation, right? That we we're open to the possibility of surprise. And and I I'm I'm maybe I would say. A, not hopeful, but I hope to be surprised. And, and I think there is a, a possibility that, that we might find um, some surprises. Illich, you know, contrary again to, I think, a popular um, conception of him insofar as people have a popular conception of him, um, he says he, he grew more um, optimistic when he saw what, what people were willing to do with their tools and the way they were willing to navigate systems and work against them and put them to purposes counter to what they were intended. Um, it kind of reminded me of a, you know, theorist I hardly ever hear mentioned these days, but Michel de Certeau, um, in his exploration of the ways in which people in the practice of everyday life, right, um, navigated systems contrary to their own purposes. And, um, and I think Illich was uh, definitely celebrated the way especially sort of indigenous populations um, repurposed industrial tools or um, you know, modern technologies for their own ends. And so more of that, um, you know, I think may be possible now. And, and I think it, the, the question of scale to me is very important. Um, and if, if we have recognized again, you know, the value of a human scale, um, something good will, will grow out of that. Um, so though, yeah, I, but like Illich, you know, I, I don't prognosticate, um, I don't claim to know the future. Illich at one point said to hell with the future, it's a man-eating idol. Um, you know, let us, let us make of the present what we can. I think that's a great place to leave it. So yeah. thanks so much, Michael. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure to be on here. And again, I encourage people to check out 
the Convivial Society on Substack.